The feedback you give. Is it fair? For everybody? If you're like a lot of leaders, the research says, probably not. On this episode, how bias shows up in our feedback and the language we can use to get better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 510. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Conversations, of course, so much a part of how we lead, and in particular, conversations that involve us giving feedback. It is a constant challenge for us as leaders and also a tremendous opportunity for us to give feedback in a way that supports the development of others, supports the success of our organizations, and of course, uh, helps us to improve as well too. Today, I'm so glad that we get to dive in on this topic of feedback and also to look at it through the lens of how can we do it with less bias and more inclusion. I'm thrilled to welcome back to the show Therese Houston. She is a cognitive scientist and the founding director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at Seattle University. She has written for the New York Times and the Harvard Business Review and has previously given talks at Microsoft, Amazon, TEDx St. Louis, and the Harvard Business School. Her prior books are titled Teaching What You Don't Know and How Women Decide, which we featured on the show previously. She's the author of the new book, Let's Talk, Make Effective Feedback Your Superpower. Therese, so glad to have you back. It is such a treat, Dave. Thank you. I want you to introduce me everywhere I go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll just follow you around. <laughs> you just follow, you're just so good at this. Yes, it's a, such a pleasure to be here. Well, the pleasure's mine. I'm so glad we're diving in on this because it is such an important competency for leaders. And we are going to look at feedback today. I mean, the book goes into so much detail on feedback in so many different ways. And one of the areas that I think is a blind spot for many of us, I know it has been for me throughout my career, is thinking about the bias in our feedback. And we're going to look at this through a few lenses, and a lot of it's going to be through the lens of gender, because that's where the research is, isn't it? But we're also going to dive in a bit more. But I, but before we dive in, I, I'm wondering if you could perhaps frame for us a term you use in the book, which is unconscious bias. What is that? There are different ways to think about unconscious bias. I, I'll, I'll give you an informal definition and as well as more of a formal de- definition. So unconscious bias is about, do you lean towards someone or away from them? That That's a really simple way to think about it. And a more social scientist definition is that unconscious bias are those learned behaviors that are automatic, they're unintentional, but they're deeply ingrained and they affect our behavior and they affect how we interpret other people's behavior. So you notice someone doing a lot of interruptions in a meeting. How do you interpret that? Do you interpret that as just, oh, you know, we interrupt one another a lot in meetings? Or do you interpret that as, oh, that person's pretty aggressive. Gosh, she's kind of hostile. That's unconscious bias. How do we interpret behavior? What do we remember? What do we notice? And it's very different from conscious bias. Usually with conscious bias, you know you take a particular stand. You know you 
like certain people more than others. Whereas with unconscious bias, you're not aware that you might be leaning towards and interpreting someone's behavior in one way and that you might be a little bit biased against a different group. So it's, it's unconscious. We don't tend to realize we, we have these hiccups. One of the things that um, you mention in the book is that managers tend to sugarcoat feedback generally, which is no surprise for, I think, most people. But for women especially, positive words in performance reviews don't correlate as much with their scores in their performance reviews. Tell me more about that. It's a really interesting finding. So as you said, People are probably not surprised to hear that we sugarcoat feedback, right? We, we're nervous about saying the hard thing, and so we, we try to find some way to soften the blow, and perhaps we don't say the thing that we're thinking. What's really interesting about the research on, on gender around this issue is that when social scientists have looked at actual performance reviews, they find this interesting pattern where... In men's performance reviews, if the words like excellent, outstanding, superior, when those words appear in a performance review, and there's also a numeric rating, because some companies do both, you know, one out of five or, you know, one out of three, the men who receive those kinds of words, those superior performance words also get the highest rating, right? So you're given a five out of five, and you're told you do the most outstanding work in the division. So there's a lot of consistency for men. But you see this interesting pattern for women where those same adjectives about superior performance, outstanding, excellent work, brilliant performance, you'll see those words in women's reviews, but it doesn't always correlate with their numbers. So a woman who receives those outstanding words might still receive a three, which is average performance, whereas for men, those words only appear when they're receiving a five as, as a numeric rating. So there's some kind of sugarcoating going on with the comments where the number perhaps reflects the person's more accurate performance. But then when, when the manager sits down to have to like review Vicky's performance, they're like, oh, but I don't, I don't want to hurt her feelings. And so they, they pad their comments, even though they're being more honest with their numbers. And that creates confusion for women. We can create confusion for anyone, right? If those two things don't line up, but you're left wondering what, wait a second, why, why am I getting a three or a four? If I do some of the most outstanding work on this team, I, does, did anyone get a five, right? Yeah. <laughs> we often don't share our performance reviews, so you're not sure. And in any case, it, it sends uh, mixed signals to women. And whereas men, if they're getting a three, they're being told that there's lots of room for improvement. Um, whereas for some reason, we're hesitating to give that same kind of comment to women. That's really fascinating. And it's unfortunate. And, and I'm wondering, does the research support a conclusion as to why we do that as managers? And, and if not, do you have a hypothesis? Well, one interpretation that's out there is a notion of something called protective hesitation. This was a term introduced by uh, David Thomas back in, I think, 2001. And the notion here is, uh, first of all, that most of the managers giving feedback in corporate America tend to be male. It's not that there are only male feedback givers, it's just that we tend to have more men in leadership roles. And protective hesitation is this notion that it's uncomfortable, it's always uncomfortable, or it's mostly uncomfortable to give critical feedback to someone, but it's especially uncomfortable to give critical feedback to someone of a different gender or a different race. So that means that white male managers are going to find it uncomfortable to give feedback to either women or to people of color. And 
as a result, one of the things that they'll do is they'll pad their comments with niceties. They'll, 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 you, you use the word sugarcoating and that's exactly what they'll do because they'll, they'll be concerned that the other person's going to take it the wrong way. Maybe they're going to think I'm sexist or racist. If I, if I'm honest with my concerns about their performance, they're going to think that I don't believe women can do this kind of work, which is not what I believe at all. So I'm, I'm going to take a little step back just so that I, I don't potentially offend them or have them see me as one of those kinds of bosses. Whereas with men, that's not a concern at all. If it's the male manager giving feedback to one of his male reports. And so he's very direct about, look, you know, your performance this quarter didn't live up to what you've been able to do for the past three years. What's, what's happening there? Whereas with women, they're less likely to be that direct. So protective hesitation is probably part of the problem. It raises the question, of course, do women also show protective hesitation to their female reports? And there's not enough data yet to answer that. Um, there's a team at Stanford that's looking at that question, but uh, so far they haven't published their research yet, so we don't quite know. It'd be really fascinating to find out. And this is a great lead-in to us thinking about how can we do better. And hopefully, you know, if we are able to follow some of these practical steps you've outlined that, uh, that the research really supports, that we can actually do a better job of giving feedback that doesn't bring bias through it. And you've identified in this, this uh, part of your work some of the common challenges that managers tend to run into when trying to give feedback and some of the situations where this tends to rear its head more. And one of them is, and specifically, this is one that is through the lens of gender, telling women to speak up and some of the ways to address that. And uh, I'm wondering if you could play that out for a bit. Where does this show up and, and what does that sound like? So some of your listeners may relate to this. Maybe you've got someone on your team, Lindsay, she doesn't speak very much in meetings and you know when you meet with Lindsay one-on-one, she's got great ideas. And so you're a little baffled, right? How, how, how do I get Lindsay to speak up in meetings? And you're tempted, and maybe you've even tried this, but you're tempted to tell Lindsay, like, speak up, you've got great ideas. And that chances are if you, well, it's not necessarily always the case but a lot of times when women hear that feedback they they get frustrated because they anticipate often correctly that if they were to speak up at the same volume and if they were to interrupt if they were to do what the men in the room were doing that they would be seen very differently that they wouldn't be seen as um, an, an equal that it would be considered rude behavior and there's there's actually research to show that um, Catherine Hilton is is at uh, Stanford's linguistics department, and she finds that we view interruptions from women very differently from interruptions from men. And so Lindsay would have a good point that this would be a concern. So two suggestions that I offer in the book that I really like, um, and these are alternatives to saying, Lindsay, speak up more. So the, these these are these, these are things you can do as a manager to to change the setting to make it more welcome for Lindsay to, or more easier for her to participate. So one, and this one is going to surprise, I know it surprised me, so I'm guessing it's going to surprise your listeners. And that is when you're in a meeting, call on a woman first. So this is a fascinating study done by researchers at Oxford University in the UK, but they did it internationally. They looked at, I can't remember if it was 11 different countries, but it was an international study. And they looked in, in real workplace settings where people were giving a presentation 
to a team or to a room full of people. And when they got done with their presentation, there's the discussion afterwards, right? The Q&A where you ask the presenter questions and you discuss the, the, the relevant things from the talk. Right. And, what, and they were curious when people started that discussion, was there anything that would get women to participate as much as men in the room? And they were curious with, these are, like I said, real world situations. And they were measuring what behavioral dynamics led to women participating on equal footing as men. And it didn't have to do with the gender of the presenter. And it didn't have to do with the topics that the presentation was about. What they found was if the presenter called on a woman first in the room to ask the first question or to make the first comment, that it seemed to enable other women to participate and you would get women participating equally as men. And then the the second suggestion, this one's a little more complicated. This one comes from a researcher at Harvard and her name is Iris Bonet. And she, this isn't a research study, but it was a consultation she was doing. She had this really, she was working with a law firm where women at the law firm were really frustrated because the male partners tended to dominate meetings. And she, the, the law firm was, you know, acknowledging that this was a problem, but how do we change the dynamics? The women are in the minority, but they're also almost never being heard from in meetings. So they did two clever things. So the first thing is that they they brought all the partners together to have a conversation about microaggressions. What and a microaggression is a verbal or nonverbal slight. Um, they're not intentionally malicious, but it discourages people from contributing. So the partners got together, they made a list of what were the different micro microaggressions that they had seen or might possibly arise. They make this list of microaggressions. There's this agreement like, okay, great, we've identified the behaviors. But they didn't stop there, Dave. They, they didn't stop there. They then took the next step of someone bought a bunch of little red flags. They for every conference room meeting that they had, they had the red flags in the middle of the conference table. And at the beginning of a meeting, everybody grabs a little red flag. And the agreement was, if you heard someone, including yourself, perform one of these microaggressions, you were to hold your little flag up. Uh-huh. And what was, so it's clever, right? Yeah. You know, like there's accountability here. And what they found was that people monitored themselves. They would raise flags on themselves. They're like, oh, I just did one. Oh, no. <laughs> huh, fascinating. And it became funny. But within a couple of meetings, women were participating much more. The microaggressions went down, as well as the real behavioral change that we wanted to see, which is that women were participating on equal footing as men. So that's a more complicated intervention, but it raises awareness and it changes. It's one way you can be clever and change the dynamic in a way where, you know, it's not someone calling out, say, you, you're doing this wrong, but people calling out themselves on their, on their behaviors that they wish they hadn't done. The thing I like about both of these two is we're making the invitation for the manager or whoever has power in the room to make a change first. And when we are willing to do that, I mean, I think those of us, when we're in situations where we have power, yes, there's responsibility that goes across all parties. But when you're the person in the room with power, you first and foremost have the responsibility to lead and to create the environment where this can happen more. And so these are two things like, leaders can do to step in. Uh, a simple one, a more complicated one, but to to do it better. And I want to ask you about a closely related one too, which sure. is a bit opposite of the the first feedback challenge, but the how do I tell her, and again, you know, we're looking at this through the lens of uh, of of women because it's where the research is, but how do we tell her how do I tell her she's too aggressive, the opposite? When you're running into that, where should we go? 
It's a tricky one. So there's a team at Stanford that has been looking at at performance reviews, and in there, and as well as there was, there's a, a researcher, Kieran Snyder, here in I'm in Seattle, and she's here in Seattle, and she's reviewed uh, actual performance reviews, and what they find is that if the word aggressive appears in a performance review, three out of four times it appears in women's performance reviews, not men. not men's performance reviews. And it raises this interesting question, right? Are women actually being more aggressive at work? And and other research suggests, no, women are not being aggro at work, right? We'd all be surprised to hear that. But it it gets back to unconscious bias. We're seeing the same behavior in men and women, but when she does it, it feels aggressive. When he does it, it's just the way that the team works. It gets back to the interruptions, for instance, that we were talking about earlier. So, this is a tricky issue. And so if you find yourself as a manager thinking, oh, I've got to give Vicky the feedback that she's being too aggressive, I would encourage you to, to, to do two things. Let's say you receive this feedback in, in Vicky's 360 review. Someone says, gosh, you know, I like working with Vicky, but wow, she's a bit aggressive, isn't she? First of all, if you can vet that source, if you can go to that person and find out okay, what gives you that impression? Because you might be hearing this from someone either on your team or an outside team to to find out what behaviors specifically are they seeing? Because then you could address, you could say, you know, if they say, well, she talks over people sometimes, you you could say, well, this is, that's how our team works. You know, actually, if you were to think about it, Randy talks over more people than anyone, right? Mm. It's not Vicky, it's probably Randy, right? Or whoever it might be on your team. Um, You might very well find that this is just the norm. So to find out what the behavior is, um, is, is a, you know, so basically vetting your source, right? Who, who are you hearing this from? And, um, and that's, it gets back to your point. You can show real leadership on this by um, not just accepting it at face value, but pursuing what might really be the thing that's getting under someone's skin. I like the mindset here, especially of, yes, there may be something there, but let's vet it first and make sure we're not just falling into the trap of I'm making the common mistake of bias that we do see a lot in this situation. And I also really like the invitation you make on this is that if you do decide to give feedback, there's a way to frame it, to really look at it that's from a standpoint that's a little less biased. Um, could you walk us through that? Because I think it's this is really powerful. Let's say you decide, you know, you've you've noticed these behaviors in, in Vicky as well, and, and you're concerned perhaps, even if her level of aggressiveness is normal for the team, but you want to say something because this is starting to create a bad impression and you, you don't want people to avoid working with her. So let's say you decide you're going to have this conversation with Vicky. And so first of all, you would want to state your good inten- intentions. Like, I, I'm so grateful that you speak up in meetings, you have some of the best ideas on the team. And I want to make sure people have a good impression of you and want to work with you. And right now, I'm concerned that some people hear you as being too aggressive. And and then you can acknowledge like, I'm not sure if that's that feedback is fair or unfair, but I wanted you to know that's an impression people have of you. And then you can take a tip. You had a, you have, I, I learned about this great person from your podcast, Dave, and that is Sharon Bar-David. I think you've had her on multiple times, in fact. Um, and in any case, she has a great tip. And that is, I want to help you make that negative impression go away. And to be able to say that, that we're trying to do impression management here. And maybe that feedback that you're aggressive is fair or unfair, I want to make sure that people don't see you that way. And now this opens up a conversation about impressive, 
impression management. We're not talking about Vicky as a bad person. We're talking about here's how people see this. People get uncomfortable with it. What can we do? And then then the two of you can decide, does Vicky want to work on this on her own? Does she want to work on it with you? There's, there's some great, uh, you're probably familiar with Joseph Grenny's work. He's one of the authors of Crucial Conversations. Yes, yes. Yeah. So he's, he's got the, they did some research. He did some research with David Maxfield and he, he was looking at this question of how to re- reduce perceptions of aggressiveness for women. And he found some language that really works. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you the language that they used. And it's tricky with this because you'll hear the language and you might think, do I have to use exactly those words? But you can use the general gist. A phrase that they found reduced perceptions of aggressiveness for women by nearly 30% was this. I know it's a risk to speak this assertively, but I'm going to express my opinion very directly. Hmm. So you could you could potentially coach Vicky on, this might be some language when you're about to make a really strong statement, you can preface it with that statement, and then people won't take what you're about to say next as so aggressive. I think one of the things that happens is there's this stereotype that women are more emotional. So if a woman is making a really strong comment, she's lost control. I don't know where she's coming from. <laughs> you know, she's like, whoa, whoa, Vicky, back off. Yeah, right. Yeah. So if you're prefacing it with one of these two statements, you know, I see this as a matter of honesty and integrity, or I know it's a risk to speak this assertively, you're showing like, oh, I'm perfectly clear-headed in this moment. I'm, I'm intentionally going to say something strong. So you've signaled to people, I haven't lost control. This is just that important to me. So I think that's part of what's happening there is that you're letting people know, I'm on this team. I care about these is- issues just as much as everyone else. And so you then are letting people know this is, this is a good comment and a very reasonable one. I want to ask you about something in in this part of the book that is an uncomfortable situation for a lot of folks when they run into it as managers and, of course, as employees, is tears when they show up in the workplace. And there's some really interesting things you've uh, found in in the research as far as how to approach this. First of all, do we know how this breaks down by gender as far as when tears show up in conversations at work? There is data on this. I'm trying to remember, but I I don't think I can remember the numbers off the top of my head. Women are much more likely to admit crying at work than men are, Mm. Um, but I can't remember the exact statistics. But for men, it was less than 20% of men will admit that they've cried at work. Now, whether or not it's actually under 20% or it's higher, it's hard to know because um, there, there is also a stigma to crying at work, especially for men. And so men might be less likely to admit it. But it is uh, much more common for women to at least admit crying at work than, than men. This is a place that I think a lot of men in particular, if and when this shows up, and I think for most people it does at some point, where they're having a conversation with a female employee and tears show up and not knowing what to do. And you have a few suggestions for when that kind of emotion comes in of what to do next. So first of all, keep in mind, if someone cries, it doesn't mean they're falling apart. I've interviewed some women in particular who cry very easily. <laughs> um, you get, get, get to an issue that they care very much about and, and, and their eyes are likely to, to well up. So first of all, don't, don't think whether it's a man or a woman that cries in your office that it means that they're falling apart or, or cries on a Zoom call, which is especially awkward for, for the person who's 
got tears. But two two suggestions. So first of all, don't ignore it. I've 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 heard of stories where the manager just keeps talking as though the other person isn't crying and that just feels so awkward. You feel so invalidated and you feel like you have to stop crying even faster because they're not um because they're they're just ignoring what you're doing. So first of all, don't ignore it. What I often do when this happens in my office, I grab the box of Kleenexes from my shelf and set it down in front of the person and I I, I might say something like, hey, it's okay. I have strong feelings too sometimes. Or, you know, another phrase I like is if feelings were forbidden, I wouldn't work here. And that usually just makes it so validating for the other person to know this is okay, mm. you know? You make the invitation also that in addition to not ignoring, uh, which I love that you <laughs> remind us to do that, is to ask a question. What would a question sound like? So. Good advice here is to avoid why questions to because that can put people on the defensive. So not to ask, why are you crying? And you might say it in that gentle way that I just said it, but that puts the other person as on the defensive. So better questions to ask might be, I see this is stirring some strong feelings. If you don't mind my asking, what's causing the emotion for you? Mm-hmm. Um, to allow the person to to say what's frustrating them or what's upsetting them. Another another one I learned actually from you, Dave, I'm so grateful for this, is you offered the question of what are you thinking? And I thought this was brilliant. Do you, do you want to say more about why you like that language? What are you thinking? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the things I learned when I was a Carnegie instructor, I don't, I don't remember if this was part of the formal training or not, or if someone just told me this along the way, is you know, we would often ask people in our courses to tell stories, and stories sometimes bring out emotion. And when someone would get in the situation where they were overcome with emotion, and and to the earlier point, there's lots of reasons people cry, right? But but one reason is they really kind of get get overcome with emotion and lose control a bit. One of the things that I would try to do is to help them restore their own control. And by asking a question that was a very logical question versus an emotional question. I found that that sometimes would help people to get back to the place where they felt more in control and could continue talking or giving their message or whatever it was. And rather than asking a question like, well, how did you how did that make you feel when it's obvious the emotion that's already there? I would ask, what happened next? Because I want to help them to get through the story. I want and and by the way, there's a fine line here between helping someone restore their own control versus trying to control. <laughs> the first helps them to save face, ideally. The, the second is you trying to avoid discomfort. And we don't, that the intention here shouldn't be to try to avoid our own discomfort with emotion. It should be to give them back control so they can communicate what they want to say in the way they want to say it, and just to help them to get that control. I love that. I love that distinction between you're trying to regain control versus allowing the other person to regain their own control. Yes. Um, yes. So, so often, you know, we're all we're all doing impression management at work. We're all trying to bring our best selves and and show people how capable we are. So showing that you trust that the other person can regain control is huge. Um, I know some managers who have tried to, when someone cries, they say, Okay, all right. Well, we we can just stop there as though everything has fallen apart and we we can't continue. Whereas the other person is probably going to appreciate it if you give them a chance to regain their composure. You can you might even say, "Do, do you want a minute?" 
and that person might be really grateful for that. But don't view it as I need to give up on you because that's yes. so disheartening. Yes. Like that's the time to really have the conversation, right? And and to your point, like, yes, you know, allow them an out if they want to not have the conversation. But but do that from a, a place of I care about you and I'm supporting you in this conversation versus I'm trying to bail as soon as I can. Because those sometimes are the best conversations if you're willing to work through that own discomfort you may have as a manager, you will hear things that you may have missed for the last nine months in that next minute or two when that emotion has come out in a significant way. It's so true. I, I had an experience once where I was giving, uh, it was a, a male professor, I was giving him feedback and, and I um, he wasn't someone who worked for me, but he was someone who had specifically asked me to give him feedback on his teaching. And I'm... I, I decided to ask this somewhat risky question, Dave, and that was, I had noticed that he seemed very shy, and I was wondering if he thought that was an obstacle in his work as a, as a professor. And so I did, the, I did the risky thing, and I raised it, and I asked him, you know, I, I've noticed that you seem a little shy. Is, is, that an, is that ever a problem for you in your teaching? And he started to cry because mm. he was worried that this was a problem in his teaching. And the fact that he could finally talk about it with someone because he wasn't sure how students perceived him, but he couldn't get over his shyness. And it was quite a moment because we were then able to have a much deeper conversation about how he could let students know, like, I'm shy. And it doesn't mean that I don't want to talk to you. It's just, that's who I am. And it, and it was very empowering because he, he was a tenured professor. He, he'd been teaching for years, but no one had had the courage to have that conversation with him. So it led to a great release, but it also allowed us to be more productive about generating strategies for an issue that he thought was unmentionable. Um, um, Mr. Rogers, the great late Mr. Rogers, had, has a wonderful quote about anything that's human is mentionable mm. and anything th that's mentionable becomes more manageable. And I love that. If we can mention it, then it makes it okay for the other person to talk about it. You know, it doesn't mean we have to go and get degrees in therapy, right? We can just allow that moment to be there. And I'm, I'm, it's okay. It, it's, it's okay that you're having those strong feelings, those strong emotions. And then take a breath and let the person work through it. And then you can continue. And that person will feel chances are much closer to you and more grateful for you as a manager that you allowed them to be human. I want to mention another population as well, too. Um, those employees who are Black, Indigenous, people of color, we're, we haven't talked much about that in this conversation. And the reason for that is there's just not as much research, unfortunately, uh, on that employee population. I'm, hopefully, that will be different as time goes forward here. But there is some research. And one of the things that you uh, mention is that um, evidently, when we're giving feedback to someone, I'm quoting you now, uh, Sure. Evidently, when we're giving feedback to someone who's in the majority in our workplace, we praise their skill and competency. But when we're, when we're giving feedback to someone whose face stands out, we spout vague pronouncements about how nice they are to be around. Tell me about that. How does that show up? It's so disturbing when you hear it, right? So there, as, as you noted, there's not as much research. There's a lot more research on gender bias and feedback, but now there are a couple of studies that have shown the pattern that you just described. And that is when we're giving feedback to 
uh, people who were in the majority. In some studies, that's just been white employees. Some studies, um, for instance, in medicine, that's white employees as well as Asian Americans. But when we're giving feedback to people who are in the majority, we tend to focus on their competency. And there's a, a great study out of UC San Francisco where they found that white and Asian American uh, medical students, when they were working in clinics, they tended to get comments in their evaluations about how knowledgeable, how thorough and sophisticated they were. Great things to have when you're then applying for your next job. However, the groups that were in the minority, and in this case, those were the Black medical students and the Latinx medical students, as well as just a handful of Native American medical students, what they found is that in their uh, performance reviews in the clinics, the, the words that stood out that were used distinctively for those groups, just brace for this, Dave, they were words like nice, pleasant, open. And I'm not saying that it's bad to be called pleasant and open. I, I would enjoy that. I, I hope people say that about me. But if you're trying to decide which person to hire for your hospital, do you want the person who's knowledgeable and sophisticated or the person who's pleasant and open? It's it's a no-brainer, right? Obviously, yeah. we're much more interested in the person who's developing and showing all that competency. And so we have to be really careful and pay attention to the adjectives, the praise that we use. We probably think, oh, my my I, bias won't show up in my praise, but it does. And this is something we really need to look for. There's so much more here we could dive in on for hours, Therese. I so appreciate your work. I'm glad that you are challenging us to think about giving feedback and framing feedback and, and, and challenging us to think about bias and inclusion here um, and how we do it. So the book is called Let's Talk, Make Effective Feedback Your Superpower. By the way, we've only we've only covered about 10 or 15 pages. There's so much more in the book on all areas of feedback. So I hope that you'll check it out and dive in. And I'll post, of course, my notes, as I always do from our interview, for those who'd like to dive in more on a few of the quotes and the research that Teresa's mentioned. Uh, Teresa, before I let you go, you know, you've really been doing such a deep dive on this over the last year or two as you've been researching the book and writing. As you have done that and taken on this project, what have you changed your mind on? It actually comes back to something we discussed at the very beginning about unconscious bias. And the, the one thing I've definitely changed my mind on is how easy it is for bias to show up in our communications. I, I had an experience, I was giving a talk at a major tech company a couple of years ago. I was already working on this book and looking at, at, at gender bias and feedback. And that was the talk I was giving. I was giving a talk about gender bias and feedback. And Easily, 90% of the people in the room were under the age of 45 because it was a tech company and you, you have so many people in their 30s and early 40s in tech companies. And I, I put up a slide at one point that had a, a white male manager giving feedback or you know talking to, you could tell he had the, um, the power role, to someone who was a young Asian American female. And that's just a picture. And the, and the thing that I said about this slide, Dave, is I said something like, so this is a typical supervisor employee dynamic where you have the white male and if you're going to have a, an, an underrepresented female, um, you're likely to have a white male manager. And then I made a joke and I said, but your manager probably wouldn't be that old, right? <laughs> and and I, got a, I got a big laugh, but oh my gosh, I got feedback after that talk about my ageist comment. 
And the person who wrote to me said, you know, I can't believe in a talk on unconscious bias that you would make an ageist comment. And, and he was saying, he explained to me that he was in his late 50s and he runs into ageism all the time and how uncomfortable it makes his workplace. And it was such an illuminating moment for me that how easy it is for unconscious bias for it for it to appear. And here I was even talking about unconscious bias on a different topic, but it was still, and and yet I could make that mistake. So please, I I encourage you to be open and receptive to other people letting you know when unconscious bias slips into your communications, because I know I have certainly done it. I learned so much from that moment. Not only have I gotten rid of that slide, but I certainly don't make those comments anymore. It was, you know, I got, I got a laugh, but I, but I ended up hurting someone in the process. Therese Houston, author of Let's Talk, thank you so much for helping us get better at this. Thank you. It's such a treat, Dave. It's good to be here. Several related episodes I'd recommend for you if this conversation was useful. One of them is episode 107, The Three Steps to Soliciting Feedback. My guest on that episode was Tom Henschel, the host of the Look and Sound of Leadership podcast. And in that conversation, we looked at the other side of this. Of course, uh, today we were talking about giving feedback. In that episode, we talked about receiving feedback and what you can do as a leader in order to solicit feedback from others and also, perhaps more importantly, actually hear that feedback. Episode 107 is a process for you to follow if you'd like to get better at that. I'd also recommend the last time Teresa was on the show, episode 255, How Women Make Stronger, Smarter Choices. A good compliment to this conversation. We also talked a lot about the research that Teresa has done on women in the workplace and specifically on decision-making, making better choices. Many of you told me that conversation was helpful, and I heard from just as many men as I did from women after that episode aired on how helpful that conversation was for them too. Uh, That's again, episode 255. And then finally, I'd also recommend episode 290, How to Manage Abrasive Leaders with Sharon Bar-David. Therese mentions Sharon in her book and cites some of her work. In that conversation, Sharon and I talked about the situation that Many of us have come across in our careers where we are managing someone else and that person is a bit abrasive and perhaps an abrasive manager themselves, how to give them feedback and how to handle that situation. In episode 290, Sharon and I talk about a three-step process she uses to work with abrasive leaders. That's her area of expertise, and it is simple and powerful. Episode 290 is where to go for that. All of these episodes are under the feedback area in the coachingforleaders.com website. There are many other conversations we've had around feedback over the years. The very best way to access them is to go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, and once you have your free membership set up, you'll be able to search the entire library by topic since 2011. And again, feedback is one of many of those topic areas. Uh, Also, this episode will be included under diversity and inclusion, which we've had many conversations about as well over the years. Again, all those you can find at coachingforleaders.com. When you set up your free membership, you'll also get access to the free audio course, the weekly leadership guide that comes to me, comes from me rather every Wednesday. And 
also access to the member casts and my entire personal library. Tons of details there, plus the interview notes, of course, from this episode and every other conversation over the last few years. All of that at coachingforleaders.com. Join me next week for my conversation with Dave Crenshaw. He is going to be talking with us about how to be present and to be more effective and efficient in our work so we can be present with others and also be more present with ourselves. Join me for that next week. Have a great week and see you next Monday. Take care.